Welcome to our first episode in our summer series podcast where we feature conversations with the faculty experts from the Notre Dame International Security Center. I'm Beth Grizzoli, and today we hear from Professor Michael Desch. He's a professor of political science at Notre Dame, and he's also the actual director of the Notre Dame International Security Center. Professor Desch is a frequent contributor to national news programs and the author of numerous books on American foreign policy, international relations, and security. Great to be here, Beth. So international security. All right, you, you have uh, the, the cerebral uh, background on this, but for those of us who don't study and analyze uh, the data and the events the way you do, tell us um, what security threats are we all worried about that we don't really need to be worried about? Well, we're worried uh, about a lot of things these days, and uh, there are a lot of things to be worried about, but uh, I think the ones that we ought to worry about and the ones that we actually do worry about uh, don't have as much overlap as uh, maybe they should. So let's start uh, in Asia and work our way uh, back west. China is the big threat that a lot of people talk about. The Chinese economy is growing, or at least until recently, has grown at a uh, astronomical rate. They're a big country, 1.2 billion people. They have nuclear weapons. They have a large military. Most importantly, they have some unresolved conflicts with a number of their neighbors who also happen to be close allies of the United States. We spend a lot of time worrying about China. Uh, I think we should worry about China, but I'm less worried about China as the next Soviet Union uh, and a major military threat to the United States and its neighbors, as I am worried about China as a uh, dynamic and uh, quickly growing, but also hugely fragile great power. Uh, these days, far more trouble comes from uh, domestic conflict and uh, weak states and state collapse than comes from traditional uh, great power war. So uh, I think we got to keep our powder dry uh, in terms of dealing with uh, China uh, as a potential peer competitor. But honestly, I think the bigger problem is how you uh, respond to a uh, very dynamic and uh, chaotic society uh, that has lots of in, uh, internal vulnerabilities uh, and weaknesses. It's a uh, country uh, with huge economic inequality. We, th we worry about how unequal our society is. Uh, China is incredibly unequal. It's a country that has uh, huge environmental problems. Uh, it's racked uh, by a suppressed but, uh, you know, still very powerful beneath the surface uh, political and social conflict. And in fact, if you look back over three years of Chinese history, this is a country that's gone through periods of centralization and rise uh, and fragmentation and collapse. That's what we should be worried about with China, in my view. Would you say China is the closest to being a peer uh, power in, in the world to the United States as any other country? Yep, and that takes me uh, on our little trip westward uh, to uh, 
China's neighbor to uh, the north and west, which is Russia. And Russia is also in the news a lot these days. Uh, the Russians, uh, uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, seized the Crimean Peninsula from uh, their neighbors, the Ukraine. Um, they're sort of, uh, you know, bankrolling a low-level separatist movement uh, in the eastern part of Ukraine. Uh, they're putting subtle and not so subtle pressure on their neighbors, particularly the Baltic states. Uh, they're undergoing um, some military modernization. Um, and of course, uh, they were implicated in uh, cyber attacks uh, on our electoral system uh, last year. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, the Russian threat. Um, and I think when we talk about the Russian threat, we sort of think that Russia is on its way back to becoming a new Soviet Union. Um, this is a country that uh, we don't need to worry nearly as much uh, about as we do. A country where the birth rate uh, is in the negative direction, a country with a stagnant economy, uh, a country um, that's the rump of a large empire that's not likely uh, to get much bigger, and a country with lots of domestic problems that means they don't have a lot of time and energy to make uh, too much uh, trouble abroad. Um, so uh, I don't. So that's in a completely different category in your mind than China right now. At right. Level, right. That level. Right. Um, but. Uh, China's as close as we come to a peer competitor of the sort that we faced uh, from the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Um, and I don't think anybody else is close to that, and certainly not the, uh, the Russians. Um, so thinking about uh, other threats that uh, we worry about, I guess the next stop on this trip would be the caliphate. Uh, you remember about three years ago, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi uh, ascended the steps uh, in a mosque in uh, the Iraqi city of Mosul and uh, proclaimed uh, a caliphate under ISIS in large chunks uh, of Iraq uh, and Syria. Um, and we worry a lot uh, about ISIS and this caliphate. Um, but I think, again, we're worrying about the wrong thing. The caliphate as uh, a potential state is in the process of being rolled up. Uh, Mosul has just been recaptured by the Iraqi government. And in Syria, uh, the combination of uh, pro-Assad and anti-Assad forces are pretty much uh, tightening the noose on the uh, backup uh, ISIS capital in Raqqa. Um, now, that's not to say ISIS isn't a huge problem, uh, but the problem that ISIS will present in the years to come will not be that they'll have their own uh, state, but rather that they'll revert to the methods of uh, terrorism, not only in the region, but especially in Europe and maybe even North America. And that's a different sort of threat, and one that I think we've lost sight of a little bit with our preoccupation about, uh, uh, about the, uh, the caliphate itself. Um, another threat that we worry about, um, that I think we worry about for the wrong reasons, is uh, illegal immigration. And there are two. 
I thought you were going to say North Korea. You haven't, we haven't even gotten to North Korea yet. Are we, are we off countries and we're getting to subjects, or, or do you want to address your thoughts on North Korea at this point? Okay, I'll say uh, a little bit about uh, North Korea. Um, and uh, North Korea <clears throat> is a, uh, a really challenging problem. It's a challenging problem because uh, it's run by one of the most mercurial and uh, crazy leaders uh, that, we're, uh, uh, that we see in the world today. And the fact that they have a huge military and are developing a uh, nuclear weapons uh, capability that eventually may reach the United States has got a lot of people really upset. Um, and I don't want to minimize this. I think the world would be better off without Kim Jong-un and without a nuclear Korea. But on the other hand, I don't think it's the end of the world either. Uh, remember that uh, right now uh, uh, North Korea's nuclear capability is quite small and its ability to deliver a nuclear weapon to North America is theoretical at this point. But even when, and, and I think that this will happen in the next few years, they do get the capability of right. uh, you know, maybe uh, launching one or two nuclear weapons uh, as far as North America, remember that uh, we have a uh, nuclear deterrent capability that's a thousand times the size of anything that North Korea is likely to develop. And the one area in which Kim Jong-un has demonstrated great rationality is preserving his miserable hide and his grip and power in Pyongyang. So I think he's uh, deterrable. So, uh, North Korea is a problem. The bigger problem, I think, uh, on the Korean, Korean Peninsula, again, is not so much the threat from the North Korean regime, but rather when the North Korean regime inevitably falls apart, what's going to happen in the chaos uh, on the Korean Peninsula? And that's a flashpoint between the United States and China that I do worry about. So thinking ahead, uh, about uh, a post-communist uh, North Korea and how we would manage that uh, with China is one of the key security challenges in uh, Northeast Asia. Good. Thank you for, um, for, for filling us in on uh, that was one, one area that I often find people are, are most nervous about. Um, I think people are, are a little more comfortable with China because um, the familiarity they have with products that come from China all the time and the trade and lots of interaction. But I think North Korea is still this isolated, very unknown, mysterious, threatening. Um, well, they don't call it the hermit kingdom for right. nothing. On the other hand, you know, it's really interesting uh, the point you make about Americans being comfortable with China. And I think that's absolutely right. We look at China. We see a country that's very quickly uh, becoming, in some respects, a developed country like the United States. If you go to Shanghai, you think you're in Chicago on steroids. Uh, and we all buy Chinese products. And uh, in a sense, they seem very familiar. Um, but what we shouldn't forget is a generation ago, China was the crazy North Korean regime. Mao Zedong famously said in the 50s that 
nuclear weapons were the teeth in the paper mache tiger uh, of capitalism. And if there was a, a nuclear war between the West and the communist world and 200, peop- 200 million people were killed on both sides, that the communist world would win because they still had a lot more population. And this absolutely crazy sort of talk. Um, But it's important to keep in mind that once China developed its own nuclear capability, uh, the regime didn't moderate uh, immediately, but it also uh, didn't behave in a uh, crazy way, at least in terms of its relationship with the United States. That's the reason why I think uh, we can can deter uh, Kim Jong-un in North Korea. Look where China's come in a generation. Right, right. Okay, I had cut you off. You were about ready to, to go to the um, subject of our, our, our fear and our concern, at least the American fear and concern. Um, I think you were about to say illegal immigration. Am I right? Yeah, and uh, this is a really important issue, and it's one that sort of transcends not only uh, national security issues, but also uh, our economy and uh, some of the most neuralgic issues, you know, that were so important in the 2016 presidential election. Um, And I think we tend to worry a lot about illegal immigration as a potential source uh, or vulnerability for terrorism and as a threat to uh, American jobs. And I think in both cases, uh, we uh, overemphasize the threat from illegal immigration. The vast majority of illegal immigrants who are coming to the United States are not coming from countries uh, with significant uh, terrorist movements in it. And most of these people are coming for economic reasons, for the same reasons that uh, your ancestors and my ancestors uh, came 150 or uh, 200 years ago. And more importantly, um, illegal immigrants do not uh, displace many American workers. We're really worried uh, about the loss of American jobs. The main culprit is not undocumented aliens. It's computer-assisted production and design. So we ought to be out smashing computers rather than uh, worrying about illegal immigrants. Right. Now... All of this information is, is widely uh, publicized, the studies on economic impact, the studies on crime, the studies on linkage to crime and the countries uh, from which these various uh, immigrants come. And regardless, Americans are still um, in the mindset of, of closing the doors and not making them welcome. Um, the, the threat maybe because the events are have in the past have been so um so diabolical that the fear is there but also um it seems there's an underlying idea of they broke the law and we're condoning it and that's un-american so what do you think uh, there's going to be a resolution here somewhere it continues to be something people worry about on both sides of, the, of, the, of this argument? Well, I mean, there is an element of truth in uh, many of the things that we're concerned about. I mean, 
9-11 happened, um, and it was uh, a pretty significant uh, loss of life and, uh, you know, property in the United States. So you can't say that international terrorism isn't a threat. What you can say, though, is that uh, international terrorism, even after 9-11, is far less of a threat than many other things that we do on a regular basis. You may remember that after 9-11, for about two weeks, uh, the government shut down all air flights, so everybody had to drive. You're in far greater danger uh, driving a car than you are flying on a plane. But, you know, I mean, that was a, a natural human response. Likewise, the American economy is changing very quickly in fundamental ways. And there were a lot of people uh, who are dislocated uh, by losing jobs or by having to take very different jobs than they imagined they would be in. Uh, and so that's a real thing. Um, and so there's a, a tendency in the face of real problems to try to identify uh, sources of those problems that are simple and clear and have easy solutions. And what I'm saying about illegal immigration is not that it isn't a problem and that people should be allowed to just uh, you know, paddle across the Rio Grande whenever they want, but rather let's put it in context and let's understand uh, what's the real source of uh, these problems. Okay, um, let's move let's move past the um, idea of threats and let's talk a little bit about approaches to foreign policy. And um, you know, you you outline various strategic options for foreign policy approach. Why don't you give us um, a little primer on on those various policies? And we can talk about. Um, I know you're an advocate of one in particular, and let's talk about that. Uh, and and how could uh, one possibly be the answer um, the majority of the time. Okay, well, beginning not uh, uncoincidentally with the end of the Cold War, uh, a lot of people started asking, what should America's approach to the rest of the world be? Um, during the Cold War, uh, this wasn't much of a debate. Uh, there was some you know, debate after the end of World War II about whether the United States needed to be as active abroad as uh, it had been during the war. Um, and you had, uh, uh, you know, people like uh, Senator Taft of Ohio who thought America ought to come home. But as the Cold War heated up, uh, those positions became very marginal. And for most of the Cold War, the United States was deeply engaged, not only militarily, but also politically and economically with the rest of the world. And so debate really uh, didn't exist. But with the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union, people started saying, um, is this deep engagement that the United States uh, has maintained throughout the Cold War necessary in the post-Cold War world? Um, and uh, at that point, uh, people started co co coalescing around one of four uh, alternative uh, positions. Um, there were people, for example, who said, hey, the end of the Cold War is a huge opportunity for the United States. 
we're the 800-pound gorilla. We no longer have uh, a, uh, uh, another power that comes anywhere close to the United States. And oh, by the way, we're a force for good. We're a democracy. We believe in free trade. Why don't we take this unipolar moment uh, to remake the world uh, in our image? This was an approach uh, for shorthand uh, people call primacy. And in fact, that became uh, the default approach uh, of almost all the American presidents after President George H.W. Bush. We, we heard lots of mm. leaders speaking of us as the world's guardian, and um, we, we stand tall. All those images of no, the United States on top and um, as the leader and the, the moral leader as well as the... The indispensable yes. nation. Uh, as Bill Clinton's Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, put it. Yeah. So primacy was one option. Another option that uh, some people talked about was cooperative security. And here the argument was uh, the United States shouldn't go it alone. It needs to remain deeply engaged in the management of global affairs, but let's do it by committee. Um, let's, for example, uh, take extant international organizations like NATO and turn them into a uh, collective uh, forum for managing uh, many of the world's problems. Of course, the big problem in the 90s was the collapse of uh, Yugoslavia, and NATO became uh, deeply involved uh, in trying to manage that. So uh, cooperative security was another approach to the world. Which sounds very good in theory, but for any of us who ever tried to make decisions by committee, we understand the challenges of that, right? Right, right. Which is why cooperative security was an approach that uh, some administrations, particularly the Clinton administration, embraced rhetorically. Um, but it was sort of the velvet glove over the mailed fist of uh, U.S. primacy. Now, there are two other approaches. Um, some people said, hey, during the Cold War, the United States uh, generally tended to focus on just a few areas of the world um, as you know, the key uh, sort of linchpins of the global balance of power. And those areas are still important. So why don't we pursue a, po a continuing policy of selective engagement in which the United States stays deeply engaged in Western Europe and Northeast Asia because those are the key um, industrial concentrations of power. And oh, by the way, uh, fossil fuels are very important. So we have to uh, stay uh, committed to uh, securing the Persian Gulf and Persian Gulf oil. Um, so that's selective engagement. Uh, basically, um, you know, the status quo with some modifications uh, from the Cold War. But there were some people, and maybe the spirit uh, of uh, Senator Taft uh, had possessed them, who said, does the United States need to continue its Cold War uh, global approach in the post-Cold War world, which everybody admitted uh, was a new world? And couldn't we uh, in fact, get by with doing uh, far less abroad, especially militarily, than we had done before. 
And it was this group uh, who, during the Cold War, was dismissed as neo-isolationists, as if, you know, uh, Charles Lindbergh had come back from the dead and was uh, pushing isolationism. But the post-Cold War version uh, referred to itself as uh, restraint. And it wasn't about uh, America coming home and, you know, pulling up the drawbridge and living behind the big moats of the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean, but rather it was a uh, approach to the world that said, militarily, the United States can afford to let a lot of the world take care of itself, but politically, culturally, and economically, we can continue to uh, maintain a, a deep engagement uh, around the world. Um, and as you hinted before, I guess I'm part of the, uh, the small uh, cabal who think that uh, less is more at this point, and restraint is a good way for the United States to uh, advance its interests in the world uh, we're in now. So couldn't it be considered rather apathetic, though? Um, we've got major human rights violations occurring around the world, and, and it's, you know, it's a constant criticism that, well, if it were taking place in the Persian Gulf, we'd do something about it and step in. But when it's taking place in some um, you know, remote village, uh, genocide or something to that effect, um, we're not that interested. So what about the criticism of, of being isolationist and apathetic to greater needs in the world when we do have the capability to help? Don't do something, just sit there. Yeah, that when you state it like that, I can see uh, the uh, PR challenge uh, of uh, uh, defending that position. But let me uh, say a couple of things um, in defense. There's an old saying, the road to hell is often paved with good intentions. And, uh, you know, in the years, especially since uh, 2003 and uh, our invasion of Iraq, uh, in which we've seen the sort of unintended consequences of our efforts to do good for other people, I think, you know, I don't want to be uh, Pollyannish and say that uh, the only reason we invaded Iraq was to spread democracy and to uh, prevent the criminal treatment of the Iraqi people. I think the Bush administration's mistaken view that uh, the Saddam Hussein government was pursuing weapons of mass destruction and somehow involved with international terrorism was a part of the story. But I also think the humanitarian impulse uh, was a real thing for many of the supporters of the Iraq war, including the 73% of the American public who supported it in March of 2003. But good intentions don't always produce good outcomes. And we have a situation in Iraq today where uh, you know, uh, 4,000 uh, American lives were lost and uh, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis to create a failed state that's certainly not democratic uh, and the only, uh, you know, state in the region that uh, looks at Iraq and sees a net positive is Iran, which is, uh, we've made uh, Iraq safe for uh, Iranian uh, predominance there. So you can think of a, a lot of cases where the impulse to do something, uh, which is 
understandable and in some respects commendable um, can often lead to uh, you know making the situation uh, even worse than it was and you know if you don't think uh, Iraq in 2003 is the only example of that. Think of what happened when the Reagan administration sent troops uh, to Lib or, uh, Lebanon in 1982 to try to separate the Israelis and the Palestinians and bring some peace and stability to that war-torn country. Uh, that didn't go very well uh, either. So the impulse to think that the United States can fix all of the world's problems uh, is one that we've got to resist. More often than not, uh, we end up uh, getting stuck like Br'er Rabbit in the tar baby. Fair enough, fair enough. So we have these four basic approaches, strategic approaches. approaches. Uh, clearly, they all have pluses and negatives. So how could one possibly be um, the best approach? I mean, wouldn't it seem to, to be the need for a constant sort of adjustment of strategy based on um, the events of the times? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And if you'd been interviewing me in 1985, I would be singing the praises of selective engagement and containment. Because I think there was a, a credible argument that the Soviet Union was both militarily cap capable and uh, aspired to dominate uh, Eurasia and our allies in Europe, that we had to uh, keep our powder dry. So I think the way you put it is uh, exactly right. The choice of a grand strategy is, uh, I think, conditional. It's conditional on the, uh, you know, the state of the international system. How many other great powers are they? Uh, what is uh, the balance between those other potential great powers and the United States? Um, so sometimes you might take a uh, more assertive uh, position for America abroad. But I just think in the world that we live in today, uh, we're strong enough and uh, the dynamics of international politics also operate in our favor. There's no doubt that countries like Vietnam, the Philippines, Japan are nervous about the growth of Chinese military power, um, but they'll also uh, take steps to defend themselves, build up their military capabilities, and I have no problem holding their coats uh, while they engage in that buildup, but I don't think that we need to uh, do the heavy lifting uh, ourselves. And in fact, if we do the heavy lifting, they're more likely, as the NATO allies were during the Cold War, uh, to allow us to do all of the work. Um, and in fact, when the uh, Trump administration raised the burden-sharing issue in NATO, that sort of horrified a lot of people. But the truth of the matter is, is we've been complaining since the late 1950s that the uh, European countries, except for Britain and Germany, did not meet their targets for an equal burden based on the size of their economy. And that's a function of the fact that uh, Uncle Sugar is there and uh, well, it's easy to ride our coattails. Right, um, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, because as you said, we, we trust our leaders to have the best interests of, the, of our country um, in mind when they make decisions. 
but a good part of their decision making is based on pleasing the American people and getting elected again. Let's make no bones about it. So the voice of the American people and their um, uproar from time to time has a great influence on decisions that they make. So, um, you know, from some of your writings, you contend, you know, um, you know, George Bush ran in 2000 with some messages of restraint um, and got elected. Didn't exactly pan out that way completely. Um, now here we are, um, 17 years later, we had Donald Trump who ran. A lot of his messages were bringing America back to being the great power leader and um, no one messes with us, that kind of tenor, and that's very popular. So where do you think we stand right now? Um, is restraint a possibility with, with, the, um, with the, the team we have in place? Well, I mean, if I had an answer for that, uh, I'd be on World News Tonight and <laughs> CNN and uh, MSNBC uh, all in uh, uh, the 7 o'clock hour. Um, the big question for the, uh, concerning the Trump administration is what exactly is their approach uh, to the, uh, the rest of the world? And as you pointed out, there were some things that candidate Trump had said uh, during the uh, Republican primary and then the general election that made it seem uh, that he was more inclined towards rethinking America's hyperactive role around the world. Um, you may recall in the uh, first Republican debate at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley when there were about 45 Republican candidates, um, and all of them except for uh, Trump and uh, Rand Paul from Kentucky uh, were sort of falling all over each other to say, uh, to, you know, what a uh, noble venture uh, President George W. Bush's war in Iraq was. And it really was only uh, Paul, who's consistently um, been critical of it, but, you know, also President Trump, who said this was a mistake. Um, and he got the nomination. I don't think he got the nomination uh, primarily uh, because of his foreign policy positions, but Certainly that opened the door to uh, thinking in a different way from the sort of primacy consensus that had dominated uh, since the uh, end of the Cold War. But on the other hand, he's also uh, said a lot of things that don't sound like that big a, uh, uh, a uh, departure from the primacy consensus. And the, uh, you know, the sort of, this is the wrong use of the, the phrase schizophrenia. It doesn't mean uh, dual personality. It means something very different. But in the colloquial uh, version of it, it means, you know, basically a split personality. And you see that split personality most recently with the uh, president's um, grudging, extremely grudging uh, certification that uh, Iran was in fact in compliance with the uh, uh, Joint Comprehensive Framework for Agreement uh, on its uh, nuclear program. Um, and what you see is uh, some people in the uh, Trump administra administration, the president himself, who just hate the Iranians and would love uh, to uh, overthrow that regime, but then you also see other people in the administration, and half the time 
the president who realized that um, trying regime change uh, in Iran, if it didn't work in Iraq, would be uh, a complete disaster. So you, what you're seeing is uh, these two different approaches to foreign policy sort of struggling uh, for supremacy within the uh, same administration and indeed within the same brain of a single president. Okay, in, in your forthcoming American conservative piece, you say that American support for the military is a mile wide, but less than an inch deep. What does that mean? Well, especially since uh, 9-11, um, the military has become, uh, you know, for the American public, sort of uh, the most popular institution, certainly more popular than the American government, more popular than big business, more popular than uh, organized religion. Uh, I mean, we just, we love the military. Uh, any sporting event, uh, any NASCAR race, uh, we have a flyover, we have a salute to the troops. Uh, you know, you see uh, a man or woman in uniform in the airport and you thank them for the, their service, you buy them a drink, you give them your first class seat if you're fortunate enough to, uh, to have one. Um, and so you see that. Um, but that's not, in my view, uh, you know, strong evidence that we're really committed to uh, thinking hard uh, about the well-being of the men and women in uniform. And why am I, why do I say uh, something like that? It sounds a little bit provocative. But the first point is, is that we have a situation in the United States today where we have a vol all volunteer military, it's, by the way, produced an incredibly uh, effective and capable military force um, that's uh, the burden of serving in which is borne by a very small sec subset of our population. Less than one half of one percent of the American public today will serve in uniform. Okay, and contrast that with World War II where almost 10 percent of the population was uh, in uniform or during the period in which we had conscription uh, during the Cold War, when, which the percentage was uh, well over, uh, you know, 3%. Um, so this institution that we love so much is also an institution that most of us have no real connection with. Uh, we don't serve, our children don't serve, um, and when Hard decisions are made uh, about sending that small part of our, uh, you know, country uh, or population that serves in the military in harm's way. We make these decisions in a fairly cavalier and disinterested way. And in fact, I think our sort of, um, you know, hyper affection for the military today really conceals a little bit of guilt that we understand uh, that in fact most of us are not bearing the burden. You know, there are people in uniform today uh, who have served overseas in war zones in Iraq or Afghanistan or other theaters in the global war on terrorism seven, eight, 
nine times uh, over the period since 9-11. That's an incredible uh, amount of time uh, to be at war, much longer than uh, World War I or World War II or Korea and even Vietnam at this point. Um, and most of the rest of us, you know, sort of tell ourselves that we're supporting the troops by slapping them on the back uh, rather than asking, should we be sending them uh, to uh, military commitments that uh, take them back uh, for most of their career in uniform? Well, so that's what I was going to ask you. How should we be supporting the troops um, more effectively? And your response is we should be more uh, um, selective about where they're sent and when they're sent, how we should be sending them, or what's your response? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, flyovers, salute to the troops, buying people drinks in airports are all fine things to do. Um, but in my view, the most important way we can support the troops is to say to ourselves or ask our uh, national civilian leaders to ask themselves, uh, when they're thinking about uh, sending our men and women in uniform in harm's way, would I send my son or daughter uh, or myself or my wife uh, to this commitment? And if you think about it that way, I think that would make you uh, far more careful, indeed far more restrained, about when and how you would commit America's military abroad. Well, this brings up a good point. Notre Dame has this uh, Center for International Security. It is not alone. There are other academic centers across the country that um, pursue this, this field of study. Why should um, leaders, in particular those that have extensive military background and on, on the field experience, listen to academics and intellectuals on, on um, subjects such as this? Well, what, do, what, do, what does this bring to the table? Well, I think in general, uh, the argument for having uh, civilian academics involved in the discussion of big policy issues like national security, you know, really f uh, flows from the, uh, the structure of our uh, society and political system more generally. We believe in the importance of having a robust marketplace of ideas. And the uh, core assumption there is that the more people you have thinking about the big weighty issues that the country faces, the better the quality of the debate that you're likely to get. Um, and uh, what I think in particular uh, scholars bring to the table is first of all, a longer-term perspective on a lot of the issues that the country faces. Um, and secondly, also, uh, we're less committed than uh, many people in uh, the bureaucracy to particular programs and approaches. So, you know, we look at uh, the issue, for example, of, you know, whether we need to spend, uh, you know, uh, another trillion dollars on nuclear modernization with, with a different view uh, than an Air Force general who spent the last 35 years, you know, coming up through the ranks as a uh, nuclear launch officer, which is not to say that uh, our opinion on these issues is necessarily 
better than that uh, of the civilian or military government official, but it's different. And the debate about these issues is enriched by having these different perspectives. Sure, we can look at this at, from a historical perspective as well. There, there have been a few presidents who really did seek out academic um, experts in their cabinets. In their, we have you know Kennedy and actually uh, President Obama. They you know said drained the ivory towers, so to speak. So can we look at um, the history of the events that unfolded? Did it make much of a difference? Was it that different from other presidents who didn't seek out any sort of um, intellectual consultation? Well, uh, that's a big question. Um, and I have a vested interest as a uh, civilian college professor and defense intellectual in saying yes, although the <laughs> cynic might say that, uh, you know, that my view is... Uh, determined by, uh, you know, my own professional interest. But I, I would say, I'd point to a couple of things. I mean, first of all, um, the advent of nuclear weapons, and particularly a world in which a number of great powers had significant nuclear capability, uh, was a military revolution. It uh, completely changed uh, international politics in the late 40s and early 1950s. And a lot of the thinking about the consequences uh, of that strategic development came from university-based defense intellectuals or civilian defense intellectuals at you know these intellectual halfway houses like the RAND Corporation. And I think in general, uh, they contributed very positively to our, both our understanding of the effect of nuclear weapons uh, on relations among states and uh, conversely uh, also to uh, helping uh, the United States and the Soviet Union uh, get through the Cold War without it ever becoming hot. A negative example would be uh, the war in Vietnam which the vast majority uh, of uh, civilians, particularly in academia, thought uh, was a mistake and unnecessary. And uh, there was a petition in 1965 uh, signed by 5,000 college professors saying that America's growing uh, commitment to Vietnam was a mistake. That looks pretty good uh, from the standpoint of uh, 2017. Now, I'm not saying on every issue uh, the professoriate is right or that they uh, you know, would necessarily uh, make better policy in each case. But I'm just saying uh, our national debate about big policy issues is always better when there are more and different voices. And the university and academia are a particularly important voice to be a part of all those debates, including national security. So as a professor, as a scholar, how do you teach international security without getting political or being accused of leaning left or leaning right? Or is that even a concern? I mean, we, we think we mention all these think tanks and most of them have a reputation for being, of, you know, leaning one direction or the other. So as you teach and you're, in, you're, you're with um, future generations every day, trying to educate and, and um, inspire them for the future. Is it even a concern? 
It's a huge concern. Um, and uh, it's also, uh, it, I mean, I think it's a, it's a concern in part because uh, professors have uh, obligations to their students. And the obligation to your students is to give them the best education that you can. And if you believe, like me, that the best education comes out of being exposed to a wide variety of different viewpoints and sort of helping people learn how to think critically about those various viewpoints, uh, if you, you know, sort of put your thumb on the scale for your own viewpoint, um, you know, you're really doing them a disservice. It also requires uh, a lot of humility, which uh, in most walks of life is in short supply, but especially among professors, it's in uh, a real short supply. But you, you have to acknowledge the, not the possibility, but the certainty that on uh, some issues and maybe some really important issues, you're wrong. And if you're pushing students you know, to take your view and not view your view as, uh, you know, critically as the other views that are out there, uh, again, uh, you may be uh, doing them a, uh, a grave disservice. And the fact that, as you can see, I have a few opinions. I don't express them, you know, very strongly, but they're there. I don't, I don't want to not be able to comment on some of the uh, big issues facing the country, but I do think that there is a bright line for me between the classroom, where my obligation is to present the important issues and present the, a variety of different perspectives on those issues, um, and the, uh, you know, the bully pulpit, where I can say, I think restraint uh, is the uh, best approach for the United States today. So if you were to come to my class on grand strategy, you'd get a lecture on uh, uh, restraint, selective engagement, cooperative security, and primacy. Uh, and I would hope it would be a Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am, sort of approach. And if students on my, uh, on my end of the semester evaluations say, we couldn't really tell where you came down on that uh, in class, then I would feel pretty good about it. Well, on that note, we'll, we'll end our conversation just for today and look forward to speaking with your colleagues um, in future episodes on this podcast. Today, our conversation has been with my, Professor Michael Desch here at the Notre Dame International Security Center. His most recent book is Public Intellectuals in the Global Arena. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under sample swap.